Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. W- it is the first episode of April here on Legal Face Off. Welcome to it. My name is Sam Paniano. But joining me as always, the Legal Eagles, Rich Linkoff, Tina Martini. Some of us need haircuts. Some of us are wearing shirts. This is wild. Tina, welcome back to the show. How have you been? I've been good. I've been good. You know, it's been uh, coronavirus central in uh, the law firm environment, but everything's good. Everybody's healthy and safe, and that's what matters. How are you doing, Sam? I'm okay. I, Rich, you look upset. You're like slumped over. You all right? No, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> Just trying to uh, take in all the uh, the background there in the uh, Panianovich uh, bar. This is actually the library here in our house. Yes. All of our wow. phones. Impressive. Books. We got to do it from... From the basement next time. So plenty to get to per usual. Lots going on. I actually want to talk about Lori Lightfoot's haircut at the end of the show. But the usual, commercial property insurance, law firm salary reductions, law-themed movies that you can watch during the downtime, and of course, the legal grab bag at the end of the show. But to kick things off, we welcome in Stephen Badger, who's a partner at Zell LLP. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Hey, Steve. So we're seeing a lot of uh, lawsuits by business owners um, against insurance carriers alleging that losses um, from shutting down their businesses because of the pandemic should be covered by business interruption insurance. Talk to us about uh, whether that's a strong argument. Sure. So my law firm represents the commercial property insurance industry in emerging risk and uh, other uh, uh, catastrophic exposures. Uh, this, of course, is one of them. Uh, Commercial insurance policies provide coverage, uh, as we know, for physical loss or damage. Uh, And that's the fundamental concept of property insurance. You have to have physical loss or damage. So the question that's going to exist under most policies is, does coronavirus, if actually found on a property, constitute physical loss or damage? There's a secondary issue, and that is if you don't have the virus on your property, Uh, Some policies provide what's called civil authority coverage, and that is if your property is shut down by order of civil authority because of physical loss or damage at a nearby property, then you may have coverage in that situation as well. So that's what we're dealing with. That's going to be the big issue. That's what the lawsuits involved that have been filed so far. That issue, uh, like those issues, like any issue in a catastrophe situation, will be addressed first through a claim adjustment and then through the courts. So see, just so I'm clear, I just want to follow up on one thing. So physical damage, generally we understand that to mean, you know, if you're in a uh, hurricane or there's hail damage to your business and there's actual damage to the property, that's clear. Uh, what some business owners are now alleging is that physical damage should be regarded as what's happening with the pandemic, that seems to, you know, to probably a lot of our lay people listening, a little bit incongruous. How does shutting down a business absent any physical damage to the, you know, actual property of your business, how does that qualify? Yeah, well, the insurance uh, industry view primarily will be it doesn't qualify absent physical loss or damage. Simply the fear of physical loss or damage is not sufficient uh, to trigger coverage uh, or Uh, as we're seeing, most of the civil authority orders are really directed at preventing human interaction, right, from the transmission from one person to another. That's an entirely different situation than the actually finding of physical loss or damage at a property. 
Steve, can you walk us through a little bit more detail about what a civil authority clause is and how it impacts your analysis? Sure. So the typical example is this. Uh, If you have a commercial property and across the street, there's a big fire and and it's a plastic processing plant and the fire releases all these bad chemicals out into the community uh, and the uh, local fire marshal's concerned that there may be a contamination of the area. So he, he restricts access completely. You can't get to your property for two weeks. That's the classic civil authority analysis and situation because there's physical damage to a property within a prescribed zone. Most policies say within one mile or five miles or adjacent to. Uh, so that will be the analysis uh, here is, is there actual physical loss or damage to a premise within the prescribed geographic zone. Uh, And uh, that will be the issue that will be addressed in the claim process. And then if there are disputes in the courts. So Steve, if a business owner were to successfully persuade their carrier to cover uh, this damage, how do you calculate losses? Again, if it's something like hail damage and you're closed for a week, you could calculate what that week of revenue would uh, result in for, let's say, a restaurant. But this is a lot less clear, right? How would you calculate the damages in this case? Well, assuming there's coverage, right? Assuming, as you say, there is actual coverage. Which is a big assumption we know that'll be litigated forever. (laughs) But putting that aside, hypothetically, if it is covered. So it'll be just like any other uh, insurance claim. If there's actual physical damage on the property, All right. So separate from the civil authority, there's actual physical damage on the property. There will be a cost to remediate and restore the property in just a civil authority situation where you don't have damage on your property. Then all you have is a business income loss claim uh, and the policies prescribe, just like any business income loss claim, how to measure that. There is a waiting period. Typically, the policies don't kick in for 72 hours. Then there's a period of restoration where the policies will respond to your damages during a prescribed period of time. So accountants will come in, they'll measure the loss, they'll determine your lost uh, revenue, take off expenses, and actually calculate just like any regular business interruption claim. So Steve, there have been some legislative proposals to address these issues. If they or the courts actually force insurance carriers to cover these losses, Could insurance carriers actually cover these losses? No, they could not. Uh, And it really uh, turns the entire concept of insurance upside down by requiring insurance companies to pay non-covered claims. It's also unconstitutional. uh, But estimates are uh, that there could be as many as 30 million business interruption claims uh, that uh, are out there to be uh, pursued. Uh, And not only does the insurance uh, industry not have the capacity or the surplus uh, to handle those claims, nor do they have the adjustment capacity. So it's really bad policy. Everyone's sympathetic uh, to small business and want to find a way to compensate small business for their business interruption losses. But retroactively changing an insurance policy isn't the way to do it. So, Steve, I'm an insurance defense lawyer as well. So I, I agree with your position. Certainly there's other positions um, from plaintiff's attorneys who are bringing these actions right now who would say that, you know, those are the breaks. If you bought a policy, a policy we understand that there might not, this might not be what you contemplated, but that's what insurance is for. I agree with you, and maybe we'll have, you know, the opposing view on next show. 
But, you know, without getting too much in the weeds on insurance, um, you know, underwriters look at risk when they issue policies. And there's no way they could have contemplated this risk when they issued those policies. And doing so would literally bankrupt the system. And that would not affect just business owners, but would reverberate through the insure, entire insurance industry. Um, so last question we have for you is, um, you know, this is, I think, an area or an example of an area that will generate Obviously, a lot of litigation. Tina mentioned legislation. Um, in some areas, we're seeing firms laying off personnel. We're going to cover that in a moment with another guest. But in other areas, we're going to see a boom of, 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 of legal work, both on the plaintiff side, you know, massive class actions. We're going to cover that in our grab bag shortly. But also on the defense side, there's going to be the need for, um, I think, you know, years of litigation on issues like this. There will be, no doubt. Now, I don't believe a class action is the appropriate vehicle here. Uh, the issues uh, are unique to each individual claim. Uh, but there's no doubt there's going to be a lot of litigation. Uh, policyholder attorneys are creative. Uh, they will find ways to argue for coverage. Uh, and like any disaster situation, whether it was a hurricane in the past or a flood, uh, the coverage questions that are disputed will be resolved in the courts and determinations will be made as to whether the policies provide coverage. That's our process, uh, and that's how this one will play out as well. He is Stephen Badger, partner at Zell LLP. Stephen, thank you for your time, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for having me. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Welcome back to Legal Faceoff here on WGN, WGNRadio.com. Joining us now on the phone or on the Zoom call, I should say, is the senior <laughs> editor of Above the Law, AboveTheLaw.com, Catherine Rubino. Catherine, welcome to Legal Faceoff. Hi there. Thanks for having me on. So, Catherine, every day, several times a day, we're hearing about COVID-19 and the, I guess, the destruction that it's inflicting upon all facets of our existence. Um, the founder of your publication, David Latt, made significant headlines when he fell gravely ill a couple of weeks ago with COVID-19. We're so thrilled to hear that he's doing much better. He really demonstrated a lot of bravery and determination in telling his story. Mm -hmm. um, by all accounts, he's recovering. Um, many businesses and law firms included are among those that are making some pretty tough decisions about what they're going to do in terms of downsizing or furloughing their workforce to address the downturn in demand. And we know that you're keeping a close eye on all of these developments 
which are evolving several times a day. Mm-hmm. Which are the firms as of today that have really been making the headlines with respect to um, furloughing and staff cuts and attorney cuts? And how are they choosing to address this disruption to their businesses? Well, we're actually seeing um, a pretty wide variety of the type of law firms that are affected. Um, smaller regional firms are definitely doing a lot of, of cost-cutting or COVID austerity measures. And we're seeing kind of a, a wide range of what those entail. Some places are doing pure layoffs. Some places are doing furloughs, meaning that they are, some places are keeping the benefits uh, intact for furloughed empl- employees and they intend to hire them back. Um, other places are doing cost-cutting measures. Um, sometimes equity partners are taking a reduction in their payout, their their kind of periodical payouts. Um, and other times, all employees are being asked to take a pay cut. And how much that pay cut is um, has also varied quite widely. Um, 15%, 20%, 25%. Some partners are taking a 30% cut. Um, and we're seeing the very top of kind of the um, rankings, the AMLAW 100, the top 50, we haven't seen anything in uh, from those firms yet. Um, in fact, they've kind of gone around the other side, a lot of the top, very, very top firms and had town hall meetings or firm-wide emails assuring their folks that we're not considering layoffs right now, we're not considering uh, cutting your salary right now. But that second, you know, the 50 to to 100, that second 50 uh, in the AMLA, we have definitely seen a few folks um, that are big enough to kind of make that ranking, but still are are facing some difficult times right now, Um, as well as, you know, folks who are in the second 100, AMLA 100 to 200, those are sort of the biggest firms that we're seeing right now that are uh, doing cost-cutting measures. And some firms are very upfront that this is, especially to the extent that they're partner-based because they're, you know, they are invested in the uh, firm that this is proactive um, and they don't, you know, they intend to be able to make it up. Um, Although, you know, intentions right now, you know, I don't know that a month ago we would have thought we would be where we are. So I'm not sure that that really does much given the uncertainty both in the industry and in the world right now. Catherine, you talked about the manner in which some of these firms are communicating. You you mentioned email, you mentioned memos. I'm always amazed at how above the law actually gets their hands on memos. Um, What's, you know, really good reporting on your part. But talk to us about how uh, some of these firms are communicating this and how important that is in terms of sending this, you know, very tough message when firms are, you know, laying off or cutting salaries and how that's being perceived by some of the people receiving those messages. Mm-hmm. Um, well, first of all, um, we do get a lot of uh, internal memos and, you know, the above the law tipster network is alive and well, particularly during bad times. Um, and I think that, you know, at above the law, we've really always been since we since David Latt found it, we've been very committed to telling the story that associates feel kind of on the ground, on the bottom level of firms. So I think that we, you know, all tips are anonymous <laughs> and, you know, we have a very strong, you know, rapport with our audience and telling them, you know, tell us what's going on on the bottom, on the bottom at, at your firm. Tell us what's going on from your perspective and we'll try to make sense of it and try to report that. So people, first of all, don't feel alone because a lot of the same things are happening at different firms um, and try to get, hold firms responsible to the extent that they're not being clear or forthright with associates or anybody at the firm. We also have a bunch of people on staff at firms that also uh, tip us off about things that are going on. Um, and we've seen a lot of different uh, different firms take different uh, approaches. A lot of Zoom town halls we've heard about. 
<laughs> um, a lot of firm-wide emails. Um, and I think that the honesty is the, of the ones that are responding the best with folks at firms. Um, you know, we got one, um, a large firm sent around a, a long email explaining that they were not uh, going, thinking about cuts right now. But, you know, part of the larger message that the managing partner sent to everyone was, you know, this is a hard time. Everyone's feeling it. Things are not okay for a lot of folks. If you're having mental health issues, here are some resources to reach out to because, you you know, the legal profession has a lot of issues with mental health, you know, in general, um, and a global pandemic is only really exacerbating these issues. Um, and the way that the tipsters reported it to us was, I'm so glad we got this email. It was so honest. It was so, uh, it was so real. And I think that that's what folks at firms are looking for from their leadership. And, and a lot of folks are getting it, which I think is really great to see and very different uh, than what happened in 2009 when you look at the last big uh, downturn that affected the legal industry. So, Catherine, it's interesting that you mentioned the downturn from, you know, 11, 12 years ago, because there are a lot of folks that who especially have been practicing a while, like Rich and I have, who do try to like look back to 9-11 and the dot-com crash, mm -hmm. as well as 2008 and 2009. How do you think there are parallels between what we're experiencing right now and what happened in those two downturns and how is it different? Well, I mean, for sure, um, that was the last time that there were layoffs in the kind of top of the legal industry. So, you know, 2009 is is a, a easy comparison point. Um, there were a lot of there were a lot of layoffs. But I think that um, what we are the differences that we're kind of seeing is there were and I think that we're still getting some of this, this kind of secrecy and opacity that firms have. And, and I think that's a hard habit for firms to break. <laughs> Uh, and we'll still see some of that, but um, a bigger percentage of the top law firms are being very honest and forthright. Um, what we didn't see in either of those um, economic downturns previously was uh, furloughs. Um, I think that's also a difference because people expect, because it's a pandemic, they expect it to be over at some point. <laughs> they would like it to be over at some point. So they're more uh, willing to try furloughs and say, we'd like at some point to be able to hire back our folks. Um, you know, whereas in the 2009 and um, the early dot-com boost, we weren't seeing that it was pure layoffs, whether they were kind of, uh, you know, obvious layoffs where like we are laying off X percentage of our, our staff or our associates or whatever. Or the other thing that big law does is stealth layoffs. They often hide, uh, you know, lay, uh, layoffs that are very much economy based uh, in terms of performance reviews. Um, and they lay, they get rid of folks that way. And um, that was very, very popular in 2009. And we are getting some folks uh, even today saying that there are stealth layoffs uh, that are being hidden as performance reviews. But we're a much lower percentage than we have in previous downturns. You can read more. You can learn more AboveTheLaw.com. Catherine Rubino is the senior editor at Above the Law. Catherine, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal support needs, 
please contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. You can like us on Facebook and always rate, review after you listen to the show, wherever you consume your podcast. Joining us now on the show, he's been on before. You've heard him on WGN for years. He's the editor of HollywoodChicago.com, Patrick McDonald. Welcome back, Pat. Hey, good morning, everybody. How are you? Good, Pat. Thanks for joining us. So uh, we know you've been catching up on a lot of movies. Our watchers and listeners are also probably taking advantage, as everyone is, of the chance to... uh, you know, sit home and watch some uh, watch some classic films. We wanted to get your advice to our listeners, being a legal theme podcast. Give us three right. movies that our watchers and our listeners can catch up on while they're huddled at home uh, during this pandemic. What's the first? What's well, the first you came up with. I wanted to go three ways. I wanted to go classic. I wanted to go epic, and I wanted to go modern. So. Uh, the classic one, and I think everybody goes back to this as far as thinking about legal movies, is 12 Angry Men. Uh, it's the, it's the, it started off as a television drama. It was Sidney Lumet's directorial debut. Sidney Lumet, of course, did hundreds of uh, uh, interesting films, including uh, The Verdict, which we're going to talk about. But uh, 12 Angry Men, of course, involves 12 different people in a room trying to decide a case. It seems like a cut-and-dry guilty case. One juror, played by Henry Fonda, breaks them down, and eventually they change their minds. So this is how almost the legal process works, that you look at the evidence and you decide based on um, not so much what is presented, but what the facts play out to actually uh, uh, do. So... Yeah, Pat, I saw it's it's a it's a really incredible uh, work by Sidney Lumet. I saw it when I was really young. I think it's from 1957, right. um, and you know, really encapsulates what is so mysterious and magical and special about the American judicial system and the verdict uh, or the jury process, which is you know, stick twelve ordinary people in this case, you know, a product of the fifties because it's all men. Um, but stick 12 regular people in, in a box and lock them in a room and see what they come up with. And, you know, the movie starts with an 11 to one vote and everyone's ready to get out of there. It's a very hot day and everyone's made up their mind. And through the course of the film, we see that the power, um, of one person standing against the system, in this case, Henry Fonda could persuade, you know, the 11 others, but you mentioned Sidney Lumet, one of my favorite filmmakers, Um, You know, we could go on and on for hours about him, but he loved lawyers. You know, the two things he loved were lawyers and and uh, and cops because he made a ton of movies about both. You know, we all know uh, Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon, two of his classics. Um, But he also made um, a bunch of lawyer movies. So he made uh, you mentioned The Verdict, which was one of which is on my list. Um, But he made a movie called Prince of the City, which is an incredible movie. Uh, Guilty as Sin. Night Falls on Manhattan, which is an incredibly underrated movie, but uh, Andy Garcia plays a prosecutor in that case. And uh, another movie called Find Me Guilty with a young Vin Diesel playing a mob, um, a mafia don who defends himself in court. And it's funny, I just recommended Sidney Lumet's final movie to a friend um, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, which is an incredible movie. One of the most underrated movies, I think, in the last 20 years. But Lumet's incredible. So great choice for number one. What's your number two? Uh, paper chase. The, the paper chase, I should say. Now, all of you, of course, have gone to law school. You know, the uh, pressures and the uh, 
um, situations involved. But what makes Paper Chase interesting and what makes it an epic film to me is that it's a classic teacher-student confrontation. Uh, in the midst of the, the late 1960s, where things were changing all over, even at the Harvard Law School that is uh, shown in the film. Uh, this was also a comeback for uh, uh, the guy playing Professor Kingsfield. Um, so uh, let me get my cast. John Houseman, here. the late John great Houseman, Houseman. of course. He had been uh, part of uh, Orson Welles' Mercury Theater, but worked behind the scenes. He actually made a, an appearance in Seven Days in May, which was his first acting appearance in a movie. But, uh, of course, uh, Professor Kingsfield put him over the top, and he won the Oscar for the role. But I think the uh, MVP in the movie is Timothy Bottoms playing Hart. And uh, his conflict uh, with, uh, with Kingsfield is classic. And, of course, he dates his daughter, who is played by the biotic woman, Lindsay Wagner. So a lot to, lot to bring in on that film, and it's a lot of fun. It, yeah, it was it, a great... It reminds you of any pressures in school. Yeah, I actually have very fond memories of The Paper Chase. Um, I have a brother who's 10 years older than me who was a big fan of the movie and then the subsequent TV show. Um, and I remember watching it when I was a young kid, thinking to myself, who in their right mind would ever put themselves in a position <laughs> to be in a classroom like this and to have these confrontations with a teacher on a regular professor on a regular basis? But we're a great classic, well acted and, and yes. terrific. Yeah. And a great example of the Socratic method. I mean, you know, that's the staple of law school learning. We talked last show with uh the NIU College of Law Associate Dean about how difficult it is to do e-learning in law school because you really need that Socratic method, which is that back and forth between professor and student and really sort of a, a cross-examination style that Hausman does so well. Um, when I was looking at the IMDb page for Hausman, I, of course, re remember the TV show, but also uh, that John Houseman was on uh, Silver Spoons as the grandpa for a little while. <laughs> probably probably not uh, the most proud moment of his Oscar-winning uh, career being on the uh, Ricky Schroeder TV show, but nonetheless. for that second house. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, what's your third movie, Pat? The third one is a modern one. It came out uh, last year in uh, 20, well, last year, uh, uh, last movie year, 2018, uh, on the basis of sex, which is uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, uh, Felicity Jones plays her. And um, basically, I think this is one of the, the great law pictures because it takes something that is very important in changing society. And they break this case down point by point until you get to the climatic scene where they're actually arguing the case and you start to understand not only her side of it, but the other side of it, uh, does a social condition uh, that is due to be changed need to catch up with society is the point of, of this case that she uh, goes after, which involves a man, not a woman, but it's uh, basically uh, he is a caregiver, but he's a bachelor, and you can only take a tax deduction if you were a woman. Uh, so they, they flipped the uh, case and was able to create a more expansive uh, opportunity for both genders uh, in the legal system. So it's an excellent movie, excellent movie, because it, again, breaks it down to understandable portions and makes, uh, makes the point in the climax at the trial. So 
Tila, do you just see the uh, On the Basis of Sex? I have not seen that one of you, Rich. Yeah, it's a great film. Uh, I, two, two notes on that one. Number one, it came out around the same time as the documentary on uh, Bader Ginsburg, RBG. And we actually had the directors of the documentary on our podcast. So really a, a nice, you know, fiction, nonfiction or, you know, narrative documentary version of, uh, of her life. And also, I think I like I love the movie. I would say it's a little disturbing to see RBG have sex in a movie. You know, I, I wasn't I wasn't quite prepared for the love scene between her and uh, Army Hammer. Very attractive people, but I don't want to be thinking of uh, RBG uh, sex at all. So that was all she did was she just leapt upon him and wrapped her legs around him. That was and that was the cut. All right. Yeah, I just watched little, it yesterday. So it's little too much for the uh, too much for me for the Supreme Court. But yeah, those are great choices. Yeah. All inspired choices. I, you know, there are so many great uh, legal movies. Um, there's nothing like you know a dramatic courtroom scene depicted, well depicted in a movie. It's really encapsulates a lot of great parts of drama. So yes you're thinking well, conflict is drama that's that's what exactly. conflict is drama and that's why uh, television shows and movies and all kind of media go back to the courtroom so many times yeah and you've got good guys and bad guys and yes. you know, sympathetic um you've got villains so it's really it's really a great means of conveying drama really quickly my we'll get we're gonna go around the board to see people's favorite uh legal movies my three i've got so many but the three that i came up with were the verdict that you mentioned, uh, Sidney Lumet, amazing role by Paul Newman, you know, plays a down, down on his luck ambulance chaser who redeems himself through a medical malpractice uh, case. Amazing. Um, second one for me is Primal Fear. By the way, uh, um, great role by, uh, or great, it was written by David Mamet, uh, The Verdict, Chicago uh, legend, of course. Um, the second one I have is Primal Fear, again, set in Chicago, Richard Gere, Really, Richard Gere in that movie is what every lawyer wants to be, but, you know, we're, we're never going to be Richard Gere. But it, just his approach to the jury and his body language and the way he handles things is amazing. And then, of course, you know, my, my third is A Few Good Men. Um, amazing courtroom drama. Um, the back and forth between, uh, you know, Jessup and, and Tom Cruise is, is legendary. But, Tina, what are your favorites? So a lot of them have been mentioned by you both. Um, we cannot leave out my cousin, Benny. <laughs> we've got to add some levity to the uh, choices that we've made here. Um, I, I thought it was a great movie. And I think my biggest takeaway from it was, um, you know, that you can't judge a book by its cover. So, Sam, any, any uh, preferred legal movies that you're watching there in the basement? I like The Judge, honestly, with Robert Duvall. And uh, is it Robert Downey Jr., I think? Yeah. He goes back home and... Uh, Billy Bob Thornton, Vera Farmiga are both in that. I love my cousin Vinny, but I actually want to answer this in a different way. My three favorite television lawyers are Jack McCoy, Sam Watterson, yeah. Rachel Zane in uh, Suits, Meghan Markle, love Meghan Markle, and the last character, of course, the undefeated, the undisputed champion of the world, Denny Crane. Denny Crane. <laughs> Those are awesome. Let's not forget Ellie McBeal now. Come on. Well, this is my list, Tina. If she wants to go on your list, that's fine. Now, did TV or movies inspire any of you to go into law? Because a friend of mine went into law because of Perry Mason. And then had to find out what law was really like, so... I have to say L.A. Law definitely impacted my decision to go into law. There were a couple of other things that were ha happening at the same time. 
Um, but it was it was before Law and Order and L.A. Law was really the show that was out yeah. at that point. I was inspired to wear suspenders to work uh, like Arnie Becker in L.A. Law. So L.A. Law was very influential. By the way, L.A. Law was uh, um, one of the writers on L.A. Law was Greg Hoblet, who directed uh, Primal Fear. So a lot of connection there. Yeah, L.A. Law was amazing. Cool. That is Patrick. Go ahead, Patrick. Oh, I, uh, if we're coming to the end of the segment, but also I wanted to know whether you think some of this stuff gets a little ridiculous when you watch it. Uh, yeah, listen, I mean, at least my everyday life, speaking for myself, is not nearly as exciting as seeing you know Richard Gere interrogate Edward Norton in a prison cell. So if only my life was that exciting. But yeah, I think you know a lot of legal movies take some dramatic license. Um, because, you know, what we do is probably 95% of the time incredibly boring. Yeah. I mean, I, I love what I do, but it is not, I don't think a, a, a screen depiction of what I do would be of much interest to anybody other than maybe me. So. But Pat, I will say not a day goes by that I don't tell someone, you want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. <laughs> well, the next time, Patrick, we have you on, you can help cast the legal face-off movie. You can cast right, Rich and so you, can cast the, uh, you can cast the bar behind me. Uh, Patrick McDonald, great editor at HollywoodChicago.com. Patrick, thanks again for your time. No problem. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020. Designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Face-Off since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. It is time for the legal grab bag here at the end of Legal Face Off. Thanks for sticking with us through this very, very interesting time in our lives. And joining us now, only one guest. He's that good. We only needed one. Steve Fretzen, who's the president of Fretzen, Inc., joining us with the Michael Jordan threads behind him. Welcome, Steve. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. That was one of the, the smartest purchases I ever made. I, 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 I shared the, the, the cost with my father and said, I'll hold on to it for us, though. <laughs> I took care of that. It's a good look. We've got a... Uh... Almost all Chicago backdrop here, all Chicago sports icons. But uh, let's get rolling, Sam. The first story is uh, people are getting sick of each other being home so much and divorces are way up, according to a new study. Um, and I think it's to be expected. You know, I've been holed up here at home, as we all have for a while. 
and uh, you know, enjoy my family, but ready to. You see that window right here behind me? <laughs> Even though there's a brick wall, ready to jump out of it. But yeah, um, matrimonial lawyers are reporting that the their business is way up. We talked earlier um, with Steve Badger about some sectors of the law being up, even though there's, you know, wide layoffs. Uh, there are some areas that are up, including matrimonial law, as people are sequestered um, and at home a lot more. Some people are realizing that this just ain't for me. I can't, uh, you know, live with my significant other anymore. And there's a bunch of interesting factors. And in fact, one lawyer in the article said people are realizing that they can't stand each other. So a couple of interesting factors that we want to talk about are, um, you know, some spouses are blaming the other for working too much at home. One of the things that I've realized is, you know, I'm busier than ever, even though I thought I'd have more spare time. I'm literally working at home um, more than I did at the office for some reason. So I think that's creating a dynamic where maybe the other spouse doesn't understand why you can't spend some time outside of your office. Another dynamic is, of course, you know, money problems. The number one um, cause for divorce, we've heard this from divorce lawyers we've had on our show, is money. And when you are um, facing layoffs, uh, salary reductions, as we talked about earlier, money is the, the money problems are going to be even more compounded. Um, the other thing is uh, the issue of mortality, right? I think in this time, a lot of people are fearful. A lot of people are uh, concerned that they might get the virus. And, you know, as we see death rates uh, skyrocket, I think some people might realize that even more than ever, life is short. And according to some divorce lawyers, that's a reason why people are, you know, calling them more and, and thinking about divorce. The final factor I want to throw out there is the idea that when you get divorced, um, your property and your assets are subject to uh, division. And especially with the stock market being, you know, in some cases at an all-time low, it's rebounded now and then, but people realize that when stocks are down, uh, the amount of assets that you will have to share are also down. Therefore, it might be a great time to divorce. So, Tina, are you surprised by the boon in uh, divorce calls that lawyers are giving? I, I can't say I'm surprised. I mean, you really, um, you know, set the table on this one very well. I think at the end of the day, when you have people who are in a relationship who aren't used to seeing very, very much of each other and who already are sort of on life support as a couple, um, there's nothing like putting them together um, more, even if they're in different parts of the house for them to realize certain things. And I, I think that it's, uh, I'm not surprised at, at all. I think the big challenge here for matrimonial lawyers, and we and we saw this quite a bit, is that you you really can't file for divorce right now. It's a very tough thing to do. And so, um, you know, people are, as you said, people are sort of staring death in the face. They know a lot. I think all of us know someone who has been hit by this and, um, I, I think it's a real turning point for people in many ways in their lives. Steve, you are in the business of working with attorneys on how to market their practice. When is the right time to start marketing your skills as a divorce lawyer? Is it appropriate to say, hey, are you sick of your wife? Are you sick of your husband? Call me, right? I mean, we, we will see some ads uh, maybe not that harsh, but what's the right approach that a divorce lawyer or a family lawyer should take 
when marketing uh, their skills when there's clearly a huge market for it right now? Yeah, I don't think there's a lot of direct sales going on right now, but there's certainly a lot of proactive marketing, social media posting. I've seen everything from, you know, you know, don't get divorced. Uh, you know, if you want to talk to a lawyer, you know, call me, I'll talk you, talk you off the ledge uh, to, um, you know, you might be in a situation where there's domestic violence or, or emotional, emotional toll that's happening. And you, you know, you're going to want to call me to engage. And I've seen everything in between. So I think there's, there's, um, this is probably a good time to educate and to stay top of mind if you're an attorney in, in the, in the family law. Um, but, uh, but I think you have to, you have to kind of let people figure it out and come to you based on, you know, their situation and their necessity, which might be very, very high right now, uh, especially with domestic violence. You know, I think that that's on the rise because people are trapped, you know, with someone that, um, you know, could be violent or could be irrational or could just be, you know, uh, at the end of their wits. So even though crime, or I'm sorry, even though divorces are up, Rich, crime is down because people can't leave their houses, not supposed to leave their houses. Not really a shocker here, but you have some numbers USA Today on divorces going up, the crime going down. Yeah, I mean, to Steve's point, you know, there are some increases we're seeing in domestic disturbances. Those are way up. Um, complaints of, you know, music being too loud. I think there was... Uh, Baltimore Police Department in the space of two weeks received 362 loud music complaints, which matched its total for the prior months. We're seeing, of course, some areas. And unfortunately, yeah, one of the harsh realities is that when people are holed up together, you're going to see a dramatic increase in child abuse, domestic disturbances, violence. By one account, that's uh, up 30 percent. But the flip side is, yeah, when you're home, you're not um, driving your car as much. Think of how much crime results from driving your car and getting to places. So um, the report says that as much as 92% of traffic stops are down, obviously resulting in sharp declines in drug offenses and DUIs. Again, so many drug offenses result from searches um, in your car that the sheer volume of people not being outside of their house has naturally resulted in uh, far less crime, far less arrests. Um, so, you know, probably a good byproduct of all this, but with the weather being so nice today is 72 degrees in Chicago, the authorities have already warned that you should still abide by the stay at home restrictions. We always see this in Chicago. When the weather warms up, you see a rash of shootings. You see a rash of gun violence. Um, I fear that today and in the coming days, because the weather is so nice, you're going to see an uptick in crime. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the um, with the severe restrictions along the lakefront. What happens? How do you enforce it? Are you going to have enough police officers to enforce it? Um, here in Evanston, we don't have those restrictions, but I can tell you when the weather got nicer last week, because we don't have the same restrictions that Chicago does, there were a boatload of people by the lake. And um, I found myself trying to stay at least, you know, 20 feet from people. Um, and I think now you're going to see a lot more people with masks, given the new directives and information that we've gotten about, um, you know, the recommendations to wear masks, even if you're just walking outside. Think of how much easier, Steve, it'll be to rob a bank now that everyone is going to be wearing masks, right? Yeah, no, it's never been easier to, <clears throat> to commit crimes with, uh, with the masks. Um, do you think there'll at some point be sort of a stir crazy mentality that 
while we're seeing a decrease in crime now, um, at some point, people being home for so long will result in people lashing out and acting out. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I certainly see that as a, a possibility. I mean, there's some people that are handling this like a champ and they're lo- they're loving it and, you know, it's everything's chilled out. And then there's the other side of it where there's people going stir crazy. And obviously there's a lot of violent people out there. There's a lot of criminals out there. And, you know, it's only going to be a matter of time before they, you know, they get restless and, and decide that they need to rob or they need to kill or steal or whatever it is that they're doing. So yeah. I think, yeah, I think the, the ball, the, foot, the, the other foot's going to drop. It's just a matter of when. Yeah, gun sales are way up. Sam, uh, you got to protect that bar from looters at some point. So what are your plans for the inevitable attack on your bar? You're at another location. We should say that. No, no, I'm good. You want to come for the juice, you're going to have to figure out to knock me out first. I got a baseball bat wrapped in barbed wire. Nice. Yes. Topic number three. How about this for a transition from barbed wire bats to a pastor being arrested in Florida? Tina, they said no more than 10 people in one place. This pastor in Florida did not listen and he has been arrested. Yeah. So the Tampa Bay pastor decided to have services, notwithstanding the 10 or more people restriction that's in place in many places. Um, He ended up being arrested and he actually turned himself in on second degree misdemeanor charges of unlawful assembly and violation of public health emergency rules. So what's interesting is, um, as we here at Legal Face Off like to Facebook video, there were Facebook videos of his services that fateful Sunday. um, And they and they showed that the parishioners that were in attendance were actually standing really close together. They claimed that folks were abiding by the six foot separation rule um, and that they also had staff members wearing gloves. What's interesting is he also claims that he had a $100,000 hospital grade purification system. There were 13 machines that had been installed. And what I find most interesting about this story is what he was saying anecdotally about this purification system that he claims would neutralize everything in its path in split seconds and would shoot down sneezes at a hundred mile per hour rate. But in any event, um, folks would have none of it and they arrested him. Um, the pastor is represented by, by Liberty Council and claims that this is a discrimination issue um, against religion and church gatherings on the basis that there are other businesses where um, there are exceptions that are commercial operations, exceptions to the six foot separation. Um, and what's interesting is the is he claims that it's just not being um, applied uniformly and that this is um, discriminating against religion. So um, what's interesting is, you know, we've all seen mass for shut-ins. Um, there's going to be Passover for shut-ins and Seders for shut-ins. So uh, you have to ask yourself why he didn't just opt to do that instead of hosting a live service. But um I found this to be a pretty interesting case. Yeah, throw the book at this guy. Uh, I don't care what ventilating or ventilation systems he has. Um, you know, stay the hell at home. We, I, I was going to use a more strong term, but st- stay the f at home. I don't care if you've got the best systems in the world to avoid sneezes or whatever. Stay home. Uh, I think that's obvious to everyone. And, you know, this guy, I think, is just being brazen about it. Listen, we all respect religion. Uh, He has come out and said that he answers to the 
original laws before, you know, uh, local laws. Um, so I think this guy is just being selfish and maybe you understand it when you hear Trump say, you know, by Easter, we will all be in the pews and sitting side by side. And then he quickly reversed himself. But Steve, uh, any sympathy for this argument? I mean, no, I would take it the other way and say, you know, this is the equivalent of shouting fire in a crowded theater. And so I don't think that that has been talked about enough that, you know, you're putting your life and everyone else's life at risk by doing that and being irresponsible. And I think Governor Cuomo covered that pretty well and uh, and, and others. But I think that there's certain governors in certain states that are taking this uh, in a much more lax uh, way than they should. And it's you know, it's, it's obviously, you know, causing us to spike and continue this thing longer than it needs to go on. So I think the penalties need to be significant for, you know, people that are, break, that are, you know, breaking the law or breaking, you know, breaking um, the, you know, the, the obvious uh, concern here. Topic number four involves, again, the coronavirus and the fallout from coronavirus, arenas, stadiums, concerts, things like that, when you have to go through your refund policy and Rich StubHub is not facing a lawsuit because they tried to change their refund policy. Yeah, again, if I only bought uh, coronaclassactionlawyer.com a few weeks ago, I would be a billionaire today. But we're going to see, obviously, a rash of class actions. There's been a couple against the airline industry arguing that their failure to refund canceled flights um, is, or should result in damages. This one was filed last Thursday in U.S. District Court in Wisconsin by a man who bought tickets to, I think it was a Bucks game. Um, I'm sorry, it was a uh, it was a Winnipeg Jets-Minnesota Wild game. And the NHL announced on March 12th that the season had been suspended, obviously due to the virus. He wanted his money back. And the NHL or StubHub said that they're not going to refund his money because the game had not been canceled, but only postponed. He argued that you've got this touted fan protection guarantee. And then he's alleging that StubHub changed their policy because they only offered him a credit, which expires, by the way, towards a future game. He wants his money back. So, you know, I get StubHub's position also. They are relying on, you know, they're just a broker, obviously. They're just a conduit between people who have tickets and people who want tickets. So, for them to assume the cost of the tickets and refund the money assumes that they're going to get the money back from the people who are selling them. So it's a little complicated. I also understand the plaintiff's perspective that, hey, you guarantee that if the game doesn't proceed, then you owe us our money and you're only changing your policy now that you're going to see, you know, tens of thousands of requests. So we'll see, but we will see for sure as fast as the virus is spreading, You'll see lawsuits and class action lawsuits spread as soon as some of our class action lawyer friends get uh, get their thinking caps on. Yeah, it's unfortunately a business model that when things are normal um, or more normal, at least works out fine, particularly from a process and timing perspective. Um, but given the stresses that are being put on various parts of how they end up um, you know, executing on their business model. I mean, unfortunately, they, like a number of other businesses, it may look different for other businesses, but it's all coming back down to the stresses on business as a result of the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, it's important to remember, Steve, that, 
you know, without sounding like a cliche, there, there's two sides to it, right? I mean, I, I can think of the calls for rent abatement, right? It's all very popular to say that there should be a, a national rent abatement without thinking of the fact that, you know, the landlords who you won't pay rent to also have mortgages to meet. And, you know, you, you're thinking of maybe large commercial landlords, but frequently these are small business owners who own property for income. And if you don't pay them rent, then they can't pay their mortgage. If you don't pay StubHub, or if you make StubHub pay for losses they're not going to reimburse for, there's a, you know, ripple effect to that as well. Yeah, it really feels like a snowball that's just just going down the hill and get in, in gaining in size and taking you know taking in more as it goes. So I think there's going to be a lot of chicken to the egg uh, going on with uh, with these with you know tickets or with with you know the daycare. Okay, so the daycare can't keep the employees. Well, the employees then go home; they can't pay their rent, and just keeps going on and on and on down that line. And how the government's responding or going to respond moving forward is going to be really interesting. Uh, because so many people are getting hurt in the in the wake of this, and there's only so much money that you can use to bail people out and and get people back to back to even. Sam, you're a sports uh, broadcaster in your regular life when you're not busy taping legal face off from the bar. <laughs> um, it would sure be nice to watch a Minnesota Wild versus Winnipeg Jets game. Normally, those are words that no one would ever say. But right now, <laughs> we would love to watch any live sports. Give us a uh, a landscape, a quick quick view on the landscape of when we'll see professional sports again. Lots of talk about, you know, whether the NFL will start on time. Um, you know, the, uh, J.D. Pritzker is at odds with uh, the NFL about whether we'll see Chicago Bears football in Chicago. Gavin Newsom has already said that there will be no NFL games in California next season. So tell us exactly what will happen, Sam, because you know the answer to this for sure. Well, there are a lot of convoluted answers, and you hear different things from different states, but the way that I've heard it over the last couple of days is that the leagues are trying to all come together around one day, and the growing theme is that the 4th of July, for many reasons, is an obvious date to maybe decide on where you have a national holiday. You can start the MLB season. You can have opening day July 4th, potentially in Arizona with no fans. Uh, same thing with the NBA and the NHL playoffs. I think the NFL has proven it doesn't care about a lot of things. It cares about money. So I think the NFL will figure it out. The only sport I think that maybe we're not paying enough attention to, we might not have college football in 2020. Because if you look at how universities are attacking this issue, students aren't going to be there for spring practices. They're not going to be there for summer school. And if they don't have have school in the fall, potentially in August or September. I mean, we don't know how long this thing is going to go. I think college football could potentially be left behind. Uh, but a lot of the pro sports, they're going to pre- they're going to put the press on here. And I think July fourth is a pretty good date. All right. So you're in the sports prognostication and betting business, Sam. Odds that we will see uh, NBA basketball in 2020. I would say the yes is minus 400. Uh, I feel that good about it, which means you have to risk 400 to win 100. I think the NBA has made it clear they want to come back. We've heard several scenarios, maybe a legal face-off trip to Las Vegas to watch the tournament at a neutral site, but they're going to get something done. I, I feel really strongly about that. I think the pro leagues, they just have so much money to make up, but they're going to do everything they can uh, to get this thing rolling. Our next topic, actually staying in sports, Tina, this one from the New York Law Journal uh, about the Major League Baseball sign-stealing scandal. Well, it goes even deeper because fantasy sports players 
are trying to sue the leagues because of the sign ceiling, uh, but that has been thrown out by a district judge, a U.S. district judge, actually. Yes. So a federal judge in Manhattan dismissed a lawsuit that was filed by five guys who are fantasy sports contestants that they had filed against Major League Baseball, the Houston Astros, and the Boston Red Sox. They claimed a number of different things, including fraud and violation of consumer protection laws. Um, While the judge was sympathetic that the conduct by the Astros and the Red Sox was pretty despicable, at the end of the day, the judge held that the connection between the harm that the plaintiffs um, as fantasy sports contestants claimed to suffer, um, that the conduct by the defendants um, was was really too separated or too attenuated to support um, the plaintiff's claims. And when you look at um, you know how Major League Baseball reacted, uh, you had the manager and general manager of the Astros. They were suspended and then they were terminated. Um, they the Astros were fined five million and they were stripped of their first and second round draft picks. Um, and you know the Red Sox got fined as well. When you look at the fact that they were punished, I'm sure that you know a lot of people don't think that was enough. But as it relates to our fantasy sports contestants, um, this conduct was too attenuated to cause them harm. Yeah, I think it's interesting because as we go forward here, this is an example, and we'll see a lot of examples of some perspective to lawsuits. What really seemed important, you know, a few weeks ago. Um, is not going to seem as important. Once we're able to get back into the court system, it'll be interesting to see what degree the pandemic or what effect the pandemic has on people filing lawsuits. Thank God, for me, people will never stop filing lawsuits because that's why I'm in business defending them. But, you know, I think this will give folks some perspective on what's important. The sign-stealing scandal in MLB seemed like the biggest deal in the world a few weeks ago. We covered it extensively on our show not the biggest deal right now. I think any of us would pay to see an Astros game, even if they were stealing signs. Steve, what are your thoughts on sort of the effect of the pandemic on um, how lawyers will look at things? Again, thank God lawyers will still file lawsuits and they won't be too sensitive, but what's your take on uh, how it's affecting the legal landscape? Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 a mixed bag. I think there's some areas that are going to um, suffer because there's going to be, you know, a lot less, you know, for example, transactional work might might go down significantly where litigation may go up and definitely is going up. And there's um, certainly commercial real estate, uh, you know, if just all the all the projects have stopped. So the lawyers that were working on these projects are, are kind of just like, you know, shaking their heads. Uh, meanwhile, as we mentioned, the divorce world, the litigation world, labor and employment, all these other areas are going up. So it's 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 going to be a great time for some lawyers to stay in the in the mix, whether it's a, a good case or not. They're going to get at bats at, at at those cases, and there's other lawyers that are going to be, you know, unfortunately, I think there's going to be significant layoffs, and I think there's going to be people's hours cut dramatically, and so it's going to be a mixed bag, and and you know we'll see how it all shakes out. But it's it's uh, for some attorneys, I'm assuming, very scary. Hey Sam, what's your take on the announcement by MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred that? the Astros manager's suspension in the sign stealing scandal would end after the 2020 season, regardless of how many games 
if any, are played in 2020. A lot of people are upset about that because it doesn't really seem like a punishment if you're going to serve, instead of 162-game suspension, half of that or even zero games. Right, if they only play 100 games, is that a fair punishment? Because the season, as we know, is 162. I wonder if they maybe get creative. I wonder if they kick this down the road a little bit and maybe resume it. I mean, if they bong the whole 2020 season, I imagine you'd have to reconsider. Um, but I, like I said, I still think that we're going to have baseball. There was a story this morning from ESPN that they're looking at getting things going as early as May as far as getting teams down into Arizona around the spring training facility. So behind the scenes, it looks like baseball is putting on that press. And if that's the case and we do have baseball, I think a full season, even if it's 100 games or 162, I think it's pretty fair. How many of you would right now or May 1st or July 4th even sit at Wrigley Field uh, in a, in a you know 45,000 seat Wrigley Field with 44 900 possible COVID contaminants. Would you? You say they all have COVID? I probably wouldn't. Have. <laughs> it's a COVID convention at Wrigley. It's, it's COVID day. You get a free test for the first, you know, 5,000 that show up. No, but for real, when, even July 1st, does anyone here really think that we're going to be sitting in a 60, 100,000 seat stadium with people? I think the only way that's going to happen is if the testing gets to the point where everyone knows who has it and who doesn't, uh, or they come up with, with, with the cure so that if you get it, you can, you know, take a Z pack or whatever and be done with it. If those two things don't happen, I find it hard pressed that my wife would allow me, even if I wanted to go to a game to go. So I don't think yeah, it's, this whole notion that it's, that it may become seasonal again. I mean, I think until we get the vaccine, the medicine, whatever helps us combat this, if it's actually going to become a seasonal thing and until we get to the point where people are not dying and getting critically ill the way they are, I think we're going to probably see a lot of these venues um, very poorly attended. And again, they have said, Major League Baseball has said, we are potentially looking at a four or a four and a half month investment where you come to Arizona and you don't leave. You play at all the spring training facilities. You never have to leave your hotel. You're away from your families for four, four and a half months. We're not talking about Wrigley Field in May or June. We're talking about that potentially down the road. They're talking Arizona only to start. But again, Rich, this stuff can change in a week. Who really knows? Uh, yeah. Next topic, I don't, I don't know what Zoom bombing is, Rich. Maybe you do. Uh, but the story is that Zoom bombing is a crime, not a prank. Yeah, we're learning new words every day. Zoom bombing uh, is when someone hijacks your Zoom or other, other conference call meeting. Uh, we've seen examples of business meetings being interrupted with porn uh, and other nefarious uh, things. But the, the feds announced last week, the DOJ announced that this is a crime and will result in you know fines and prison time. A lot of local authorities, too, are saying that they're going to prosecute this. Uh, charges can include disrupting a public meeting, computer intrusion, uh, using a computer to commit a crime. We're seeing a rise in hate crimes. There's examples of uh, Zoom bombing being used for anti-Semitic purposes. So a whole new area of uh, crime that we didn't know about a few weeks ago. But yeah, a rising trend, people uh, hijacking meetings. And good news is the authorities are announcing that they're going to prosecute them. Well, the good news is that there are mechanisms that different providers are putting in place to try to minimize the chances of those things happening. Um, I experienced relatively recently someone being their own virtual bouncer on their Zoom room. I knew that there were capabilities to do that, but I hadn't really actually been in a meeting 
where that was done. And it was a meeting that was going to have at least 30 people attending. Um, I think it makes it a little bit tricky for the host to always be on the lookout for people who are waiting to get in the Zoom room. But I think that coupled with, um, you know, features like you can't have people, you don't admit people into the Zoom room until the host is there. There are, there are several different mechanisms that I think Zoom and other providers have in place. And so I would encourage everybody um, who is using these types of video conferencing capabilities to look at the security mechanisms, especially if you're hosting a lot of Zoom meetings. Yeah, I'm, I'm, hosting, a, I'm hosting a lot of Zoom meetings. It's, it's a primary way I've done business and continue to do business. And I had a reoccurring, I have a class I teach of, of attorneys from around the country. And I had a, um, uh, a reoccurring Zoom invite for them. And I'm sitting on the call and nothing was happening. Nobody was joining. And I realized uh, too late, I had to go back and it took me an extra five minutes to get it going, that everyone now had a password and that I had to approve them to get in. So Zoom on its own uh, had changed the way that they did things. And I, I wasn't prepared for that. Obviously I, I, I called an audible and I got into it real quick, but, but that's, you know, these are things that they're, they're putting out that are, that are being, you know, very helpful and proactive uh, for the, for the users, which I think is really important. Last topic here. And this is a wild one because we're talking about video games, tattoos, and the rights to publish the likeliness of said tattoos. Tina, LeBron James at the <laughs> forefront, go figure. He tried to patent taco Tuesday and now he's upset about tattoos, video games. Take us through the story. I will try to make this simple because remember, I'm the trademark and, and uh, copyright lawyer geek here. So um, you've got a company, Solid Oak Sketches, that owns the copyrights and tattoo designs that famous NBR star, NBA stars like LBJ have on various parts of their body. Then introduce Take Two, which has a game um, that depicts these stars in the game. It's NBA 2K. And as part of that game, you see very miniaturized versions of what looks like the tattoos that these various NBA players that are in the game have. So the so Take-Two sues, um, actually Solid Oak Sketches that owns the rights in the tattoos sues the video game provider on the basis that they infringe the rights and the tattoos. So what ended up happening was the video game folks won for a variety of reasons. And I think even if you're not an IP lawyer, intuitively, you can understand why that would be. First of all, you can barely see the tattoos. They're anywhere from 4% to 10% of the size that they ordinarily are. Very hard to really even discern what they are. These these folks are in motion in the video game, and so you can't even really see it. And at the end of the day, these tattoos are really part of the essence of who these stars are. They choose to get tattoos because it's part of their likeness. And the NBA licensed the likeness of these players when this video game was created. And so in the IP world, this is actually a pretty significant decision because we've seen a number of these cases where people claim that rights are being infringed in things like tattoos when you can't even really see them in the use that is being uh, critiqued and where the allegations of infringements are. And at the end of the day, they're really de minimis and they're fair use. So, an inter- I mean, this is a really big case, at least for, for my area of law, and an interesting one too, because it involves the NBA. 
Well, the interesting part is, you know, again, intellectual property um, is really sometimes a very complex area of the law and requires some really uh, fine understanding of some of these um, minute points. In this case, that's not true. To your point, it really is down to how much of the alleged protected product you can see and for how long you can see it. And the fact that it's so small on a video game, to your point, is de minimis. So it's good to see that sometimes even a very complex area of the law, Steve, applies some basic common sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like, uh, and I, again, I'm not an attorney, but I feel like if, if something is is being used in a common or 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 um, standard way that it's not, you know, it's not like they're hurting the, the, you know, hurting the, the logo artist or they're not hurting them in any way. Right. And Tina, maybe you could speak to that, but you know, I feel like it's just free promotion for that, for that artist. Yeah. I mean, there's really, when you look at it from a damages perspective, it's, it, it's a really tough analysis and that's often where this goes and at the end of the day, you know, this is part of the likeness of these stars. These tattoos are just like a haircut in many ways. And at the end of the day, that was already licensed, um, presumably. I mean, that was one of the arguments was that it was part of the whole likeness that was subject to the license to the um, video game provider in, in the first instance. And so, um, you know, there were a number of reasons for, for this decision, but you have to look at is the market for these tattoos somehow or, or the owner of the rights somehow being really damaged? And I think that's a tough one to prove here. Well, Sam, this sounds like an excellent segue to a great movie to watch while you're quarantined. None other than a movie that I produced called 85, the story of the 1985 Chicago Bears, of course, the greatest team in football history, available right now. For free, much to my dismay, it's available for free, but available for free on Crackle, everyone's favorite streaming service. Crackle, Steve, I encourage you to go check it out. Yeah, I'm definitely all over that. That's that's my whole childhood wrapped up in that in that number. I think that was payola, but we won't go there, Tina. Let's not even bring that up. That was a <laughs> naked endorsement of uh, products. Yeah. By the way, I wanted to ask you guys this. I brought it up at the beginning of the show, and I, this has been bothering me for like three days. The mayor has said no hygiene, like don't shower, don't get your hair cut. And she comes out on Monday with like a fresh do. And then she posted a picture with a woman who she said she was wearing a mask. There was no mask in the picture. Tina, you're the resident hair expert here. Um, Lightfoot haircut, good, bad. Is it fair? I can't get a haircut, but she can. I don't know. Do we know for sure that she didn't cut it herself? I mean, I know some people who have actually resorted to cutting their own hair. It's a big story. She's come out and said uh, that she got a haircut. And Sam, as Sam said, there's a picture, a selfie of her and the, or maybe not a selfie, but there's a picture of her and the hairstylist. The hairstylist's face is white. They're like, this. They're like smiling. Like, right. hey. So A, she's violating, violating the no haircut rule. B, she's violating social distancing. Pritzker was asked about it yesterday at his press conference. He said, uh, I'm not getting a haircut. I'm, you know, following the rules. But yeah, it's ridiculous. Sam, to answer your question, you yeah. know, why did she get a haircut? She said, oh, you know, I'm in the public eye and I have to look good for the cameras. Come on, that's nonsense. Steve, wrap it up. Take us home. About the haircut? 
Yeah. I'm just trying. I'm just trying to get my dog groomed. He's very unhappy with all the hair in his eyes. So, by the way, careful. The tiger got uh, corona yesterday. The tiger now saying that it's possible to transmit it from animal to human. So, well, they thought he got it from the zookeeper, right? Yeah. Yeah, I've got to stop sneezing in my dog's face. That's for sure. That's right. That is Steve Fretzen, president of Fretzen Inc. Steve, thanks so much for your time. For Rich, for Tina, thanks to Ben and Emily per usual. My name is Sam. We'll talk to you next time from our basements here on Zoom on Legal Face Off. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the politics.